standing in the garden just think think of what we're starting i've been waiting for this day all my life you be dressed up in your finest you We're about to spend the better part of two months talking about love and human relationships. We'll be digging into a book that details the sexual awakening of a young couple. Hardly appropriate for a Sunday morning, is it? Well, we disagree. Songs is a book of love in a world created by a God of love. When it comes to the message of human love, the church has lost her voice. We've stayed quiet and the world has monopolized the message. If we don't talk about it here, then where? If we don't talk about it now, then when? The world isn't silent on human love. The Bible isn't silent on human love. So we will not be silent either. Good morning, friends. How are we doing this morning? Good. We are diving right in, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, so I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Song of Songs chapter 1. And our ushers are coming down the aisle right now. We're going to be all over the Bible today. We'd love for you to be able to follow along. So uh, if you need a copy, just put your hand up in the air, and they will get that to you. We'll be on page 672. And as you are finding Song of Songs chapter 1, just a quick reminder. Many of you know that tomorrow... September 19, we're going to be doing a Art of Communication seminar here in the Worship Center. I'm going to be leading this from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. And this is going to be on how do you communicate? How do you grow in your ability to communicate? What are the best communicators in the world doing? And how can we all grow in our ability to communicate? And so this is something we've been promoting to pastors, to business leaders, to teachers, to anybody who teaches in any kind of capacity uh, for you to be able to come. And it's only $10. It actually covers your catered lunch. It is actually sponsored by Central and the West Michigan District. So that's why it's so inexpensive to come because it's just covering your lunch. But uh, would love to invite you to come. If you did not know about this, we've been promoting it, but if this is the first time you've heard it, uh, you can still register. We just want to know how many people are coming so we have enough food. And at this point, uh, we've got about 350 people coming out tomorrow, so there's still plenty of room and uh, love for you to do that. You can go to centralwesleyan.org forward slash art of communication to learn more about that, or you can just find it on the events page on our website. So just wanted to let you know about that. Also, as a precursor to today's message, but really to this whole series, as Craig did last week, this is PG-13. But we did have families come up after the first service and said, exactly the kind of stuff that you talked about, I want my kids hearing. Because they're already hearing about sex in our world, and we need to hear it from a biblical perspective. So we say it's PG-13, but understand that we recognize that there are families, young families that are going to be in these services. But we do want you just to know about that as well. And uh, the last thing I want to do before we jump into our passage for today is just a quick kind of debrief from last week. If you were not here last week, Craig did a fantastic job laying the foundation for this series. If you did not have a chance to watch that teaching, you weren't here, would highly recommend you do that before next week. But what Craig did is really help us understand What's the framework with which we understand this book and how we're going to communicate in the midst of this? And talked about how we believe that this is Solomon writing this book at the end of his life. This is the middle of the 10th century B.C., so somewhere like 960, 950 uh, B.C., and he wrote it as a way of saying, do as I now say, not as how I did it. And that's really helpful to understand kind of the context. And what's more, Craig talked about 
a great kind of four-point outline, if you will. We call them guideposts or bedposts to how we're framing this series from a guy by the name of Doug Sean, uh, Douglas Sean O'Donnell. And he says this. He says, these are the four things you need to know about the Song of Songs. And Craig and I adhere to this as well. This is a song. This is poetry set to music. This is not preaching. It's creative. It's artsy. And it needs to be understood as such. It is about human love. This is not first and foremost about God's love for us. That is an allegorical interpretation that came much later in church history. And it's not bad to think about God's love for us this way, but understand God's love for us supersedes any kind of human love. This is first and foremost, we believe, written about human relationships. Thirdly, it is found in the Bible. Thank you, Captain Obvious. All right, but why do we need to know that? Because you have to understand that in the context of the other pieces of wisdom literature. Craig specifically talked about the connection to Proverbs last week. We need to recognize it is in the wisdom literature, but it is also in the Bible as in the whole narrative story, which is what we're going to have a chance to look at a bit today as well. It's in the Bible. It connects to other parts of the Bible, and we need to recognize that. And fourthly, written to give us wisdom. Now, Craig said this last week, which was great as well. Whenever you talk about human relationships, you talk about sex, you talk about these kinds of things, inevitably, like the shame index goes through the roof. We're not here to talk about shame. We're here to talk about what is our wisdom moving forward. We can't change the past. Whatever your past is, whatever you've gone through, we hope this series helps that. You deal with whatever the past is, but we're saying how can we move you into the future? What does it look like to be faithful in the present? How can this book help us move forward in our relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another? So these are the four bedposts that are framing the series itself. And so I just wanted to review that. And now Song of Songs, chapter one, verse one just says Solomon's Song of Songs. This is the verse that Craig spent last week on. The idea, this is the best of the songs. And then this is how it jumps right in. This is the woman speaking. Here's what she says. Verse two, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love, and the word love here is lovemaking, for your lovemaking is more delightful than wine. She says it is absolutely intoxicating. Verse three, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes, right? You smell good. This is what she's saying here, but notice how she takes it one step forward. Your name, which is your name is your identity, it's your essence, is like perfume poured out. She says, you smell good, but who you are is like perfume spread out everywhere. The fragrance of your essence, who you are, the integrity of who you are. It is absolutely amazing. It is overwhelming in the best sense. This is why the very next thing she says is this. No wonder the young women love you. This man has a reputation. Everybody wants him. And she's like, but I'm the only one who gets him. And this leads to her in verse four. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. This is the word run. She's like, let us run. Where does she want to run to? Let the king bring me into his chambers. Literally into the bedroom chamber, the wedding chamber. So this is a book (laughs) that does not begin with a warm up. All right, it's like it dives right in, passionately kiss me. You are absolutely intoxicating your lovemaking. Like everybody wants you, but I get you. So draw me to you. Let us run where we want to run. We want to run right into the bedroom. We want to whoop it up and we want to enjoy it. That is how Song of Songs begins. Now she says, let the king bring me into his chamber. Later on in this chapter, we find out he's a shepherd. (laughs) He might be a shepherd, but to her, he's a king. But here's the other aspect of this. In ancient poetry, a bride and bridegroom would be connected to a king and queen. So many people believe that this book was written in the context of the seven-day wedding festival that would happen upon a couple being officially married. We don't know what the context was, but here's what we do know. The Song of Songs is done in the context of covenantal marriage. 
It would not make itself into the Bible if it wasn't. And in the weeks to come, we're going to talk more about this context and why the significance is of it. But understand the picture of sex that we get in the Song of Songs is in the context of covenantal marriage. And what the Song of Songs does for us is something that other passages in the Bible do not do for us. Namely this, when the other parts of the Bible talk about sex... And they always talk about sex in the context of how God designed it to be in a marriage context. It talks about sex in the understanding of procreation in order to have children. But what the Song of Songs does is it doesn't even touch one iota on procreation. It talks about sex in the context of pleasure. Song of Songs gives us this understanding of sex. That sex, in the context that God designed it for it to be experienced in, is a good thing. It is a good gift from a good God to be enjoyed in the right context. And the Song of Songs is very sexual in nature. In fact, this guy by the name of Duane, I think the last name is Stuart, you'll get him on the second slide. Notice what he writes about. He wrote a commentary on the Song of Songs in a brilliant commentary set. Notice in the introduction what he says about the nature of the book. He says, the Song of Songs is so thoroughly sexual. (laughs) Never when I chose to go into biblical studies did I imagine that I would spend so many hours digging through erotic texts from the ancient Near East to say nothing of all the time spent trying to understand the sexual imagery of the Bible itself. Okay, this is from Dwayne Garrett. He says, I didn't even recognize how much was there, but once he got into it, he recognized how much the Bible has to say about sex. And Song of Songs, in particularly, talks about this being a good gift from a good God to be experienced with great pleasure. Now, sex in the biblical text is central to what it means to be married. See, one of the fascinating things about what's happening in our world today is people are having all these conversations about, well, what defines marriage? Like if people are living together and they're having sex, well, doesn't God already consider that to be marriage? And people are saying, well, when does marriage actually happen? Is it at the ceremony? Is it at the signing of the contract, uh, of the marriage contract, the marriage certificate? You know, when do you become officially married? Well, let me help you understand how it was in the biblical time period because three things had to take place in order for a couple to be, quote unquote, officially married in the full sense of the word. Here's the first thing that had to take place. Something called a ketubah had to be written up. And in the ancient world, it was prearranged marriages. So two families would come to a scribe and they would write up the marriage contract, which is called ketubah in Hebrew. And in this ketubah, it would stipulate the bride price and the dowry, these things that were part of the ancient custom. And essentially, once this thing was signed, the couple, though they did not live together yet were legally bound by marriage. So by law, they were married, but they didn't come together yet because a couple of other things had to happen. The second thing that had to happen was the wedding ceremony. Now, depending upon which time period we're talking about in the Bible, it could be a three-month wait, it could be a six-month wait. By the first century, it was one year on average from the time the ketubah was signed to the time that you had your marriage ceremony. And then immediately following the ceremony, you would have the third thing that would have to take place was the consummation. And I literally mean this happened after the ceremony. So like the ceremony gets done and then the groom takes his bride and they immediately go into the bridal chamber to consummate the, the, the marriage while everybody else waits outside. Awkward, right? They're literally waiting for you to get done. Now, Uh, let's be honest, they probably didn't have to wait long because the dude probably didn't last that long, all right? It's just the reality. 
And the understanding for them is that this is in a, in a culture where they'd never had sex before, all right? So, so they come out. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's 10 minutes. They come out. And now, because they have consummated the marriage, now they are fully married And now they kick off the seven-day wedding festival because these people knew how to party. And they're celebrating the goodness of marriage. And they're celebrating the goodness of sex because with this third piece that put the whole thing together, the understanding in the biblical time period is that sexual union is foundational to what it means to be married. It is a good gift from God to be enjoyed within a marriage context. And this is what they recognized and they understood and they celebrated the goodness of sex, not just for procreation, but also for the pleasure side of it because this was a gift from God. So sex in the Bible within God's framework is a great thing. It's a great thing for procreation. It's a great thing for pleasure. But friends, there is another aspect to this as well. It's not just for procreation. It's not just for pleasure. There is another facet of this as well. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on today. Because what Craig did for us last week is he took the Song of Songs and he rooted it in its historical context. What I want to do is take the idea of the wedding of marriage, of sex. And I want to put it in the larger context of the biblical narrative because when you see this in light of the whole thing, it is astounding and it is immensely helpful for all of us, whether we're married or not, to understand this in the biblical text. So, We are going to begin in Genesis chapter 2. So come with me to Genesis chapter 2. And we are going to look at the very first wedding that took place in the biblical story. Genesis 2 talks about the creation of Adam and then later on in the chapter with Eve. So we just have Adam right now. Notice what happens at the end of verse 20. It says this, Genesis chapter 2. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. Just a quick observation. God divides Adam. He divides him in a way. He pulls something out of Adam. He divides him in order for this thing to take place. Okay, just a brief observation we'll come back to. Then he brought him to the man. Verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woe man because in the words of Craig, she was so sexy, (laughs) right? (laughs) Some of you are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. You clearly weren't here last week, all right? (laughs) Craig had this great thing you got to watch last week just even for that part. All right, so she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Then verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. It's the word divak here. It means to glue, to stick together, that they are put together. And then God takes it one step further and says, and they became one flesh. Now God could have just stopped at the united part. Instead, he goes one step further and he says, and they will become one flesh. We'll come back to that in a moment. Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. This is where we get our title for the series. They were naked and unashamed. And not only does this speak about the reality of like not wearing much, <laughs> There's a deeper thing going on here. It's the idea of being fully accepted by someone else. That is one of the deepest longings of humanity. Is that to be laid bare, that there's no pretenses, there's no masks, that that you are completely who you are and you are accepted. You're accepted by God You're accepted by others, 
and you even accept yourself purely and wholly. It's a desire of all of humanity. And we are told with Adam and Eve that they are naked and unashamed. They are fully accepted. They are fully unified together. Now, the language that God uses here is he says that they became one flesh. The word one here is a word echad in Hebrew. Let me hear you say echad. Achad is a word that means one, and it can mean both singular or in the plural context. So it means one, it can also mean alone, but, or only, excuse me, not alone, but only. But the word one can be both singular or plural, meaning this, I've got one book in my hand. Okay, Sefer Achad, one book. So this word Achad can mean one as in I have one. It can also mean one in a plural sense, like one team. Many of you watched college football yesterday. There are a lot of players, but it's one team. We are all part of the United States. It's one nation, lots of people. So there's a plural side to this as well. And what God states here is that they have become united, but then God takes it one step further and he says that they have become a chad. Now words in Hebrew carry these there's this great depth and nuance and meaning to it. And it connects to other places where the same kind of word is used. Now, in one of the most famous places that speak of God in the biblical text is Deuteronomy 6.4. And Deuteronomy 6.4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's the word achad. So we have Adam and Eve are achad. God is Achad. Adam and Eve come together in marriage and they're Achad, and yet God is also Achad. And we go, how fascinating that a word that God is used of to describe God is used of a marriage, which tells us that marriage in some way, shape, or form reflects the essence of who God is. That marriage isn't just marriage, but there is more to marriage than just the marriage. It's that the marriage speaks into a deeper and more profound reality. What is that reality? Well, when you start to understand the essence of who God is and you ask the question, who is God and what he is like, we have the best witness of who God is as in the entire biblical context, the whole biblical narrative speaks to us about who God is, what he is like, and what gets him passionate about doing what he does. And so I'm going to put this up here because this is the thing we did last fall. And if you're new to Central since last year fall, like so great to have you here. And if you're new for this series, so fantastic having you be part of the series. This is something that we did last fall where in one, te- one teaching we tackled the entire Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We did it in 73 minutes and you can pick this up in our Kingdom and Empire series on our website. Okay, but for the rest of us, we've seen this graphic. We keep showing this graphic. It's helpful to put the entire Bible into one image and to be able to understand where we're at in the midst of the story. So if you have not heard this teaching, I'll keep you up to speed during the rest of the teaching today. But for the rest of you, you look at this and you go, I already know what that whole thing is about. By the way, how many of you were here for last fall for this teaching or saw this? Okay, good. All right, so here we go. In Genesis chapter one and two, God creates Adam and Eve. But then in Genesis 3, we have the fall comes in and the goodness of God's world, the world that we said is a world of shalom. The word shalom, which means wholeness, well-being, everything is as God intends it to be. All is well until Adam and Eve eat from the tree. And once they eat from the tree, you have sin and death and brokenness and pain and chaos that enters into the biblical story. And everything of shalom has now been shattered. It has been been divided and what we see of God is that the entire rest of the biblical narrative is God not saying to the broken pieces well we're going to scrap that and start over God goes I want to put the whole thing back together that what has been fractured what has been broken that what has been divided I want to make whole again and the whole story is about God restoring that which was lost and broken And it is my belief that marriage speaks to this reality. 
that what happens right before the fall is that God takes Adam, he has already crafted him from the dust of the earth, he takes Adam and he divides Adam in order to get Eve. And then when they come together in marriage, God says they have become united as one. So God takes what is divided and he brings it together and makes it united. And I believe that what God does in that, because God did the good thing of dividing Adam, that was not a bad thing. But what Adam and Eve did is that through the taking of the fruit, they divided the shalom in the world and that their marriage is now to depict the reality that God is in the business of taking what was divided and make it united and that marriage is the very institution that breeds hope that that reality is happening in our world now and that it's going to continue to unfold because what God is doing. So if I just wanted you to kind of get your minds around this idea for the rest of the teaching, it's this, that marriage breeds hope that what's divided can be united. And I want to take the rest of our time and show you how this plays out in the rest of the narrative because the implications are astounding. Because what we have is that God, before the fall, divides Adam. They then come together in a marriage before the fall. Marriage is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. This all happens before the fall. And God brings them together and unites them. Then Adam and Eve take from the fruit. They shatter the goodness of God's shalom. Everything has now been divided. And God sets out to put all of the pieces together. Primarily, he comes in Genesis chapter 12 to a guy by the name of Abraham. And he says to Abram, I want to partner with you and your family to put the whole world together. And the rest of Genesis follows Abram, who becomes Abraham, and his family. And by the time you get to the first part of Exodus, the family has become a nation and they've become enslaved in Egypt. And in Exodus 3, God comes to Moses and says, Moses, I have come down to set the Israelites free. God goes, I have heard their cry. And we recognize that God is the God who hears the cry of those who are in need. He hears the cry of the oppressed. But the larger unfolding narrative is this. God came to Abram and said, I'm going to partner with you and your descendants to put the world back together. And the problem in Exodus is that the plan can't do what the plan has been designed to do because the people that God said he's going to partner with, they are enslaved to Pharaoh. So God comes to Moses and he says, we're going to do something about this. And Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and we're going to start getting the Israelites out. And a fascinating conversation ensues because then you have Moses who says to God, well, if they ask me by whose name of God is sending me, what is your name? And God goes, (laughs) you're asking me my name? Remember, a name is your identity. It's your essence. It's like God says to Moses, Moses, you can't handle my name. My name is really big. But Moses, let me tell you what I'm going to do. And God gives him a name that gets translated as I am who I am. It can be translated I was who I was or I think the most helpful way to understand the translation is I will be who I will be. This is the much longer name than the name Yahweh where God just says I am and he says I am what? I am who I, I will be. Meaning this Moses. You want to know who I am? You want to know my essence? You want to know what I stand for? Wait till you see what I'm about to do. Because I will be who I will be, as in, you watch what I'm about to do next, and you will know my very heartbeat. And what's the very next thing God does? He rescues the Israelites from their bondage, from their slavery, because God wants to make it profoundly known that he is a God who redeems and restores and puts back together and rescues people from their slavery. And this is precisely why once God gets the Israelites out of Egypt, he then brings them to himself at Mount Sinai. This is Exodus 19 and 20. And here's what's so utterly cool about Exodus 19 and 20 is that when you start reading the language and you understand the language from the ancient world, you go, oh my goodness, this is a wedding. 
God actually has a wedding at Sinai in Exodus 19 and 20. All of the language, everything set up. The Ten Commandments is the marriage contract. It's the ketubah. And you begin to recognize that God is marrying the people at Sinai. And then when you take a step back and you look in, you go, well, of course God's doing this in the context of a marriage. Because what we get at the beginning of the story is that the marriage becomes this picture, this deeper unfolding reality that what's been divided can be united. And so when God gets his people out of Egypt and he says, we're going to partner together to bring about the wholeness, the unity of the entire world, God does that in the midst of a wedding because God goes, as we partner together, as we become one, we do so for the unfolding purpose that together we're going to work to make the world world one and it's this beautiful picture of what God is doing and you go of course he's doing this in the context of a wedding because that's a deeper reality to which a wedding and a marriage speaks to and so then God gives him his words he says this is how we're going to be in relationship with one another because if we're going to be in relationship if we are going to be one then how you act is a reflection on me Just like for those of you who are married, how you live, how you act, it's a reflection of your spouse because you have become united as one as well. And we know the unfolding story because the unfolding story is this. The Israelites struggle to live into their part of the marriage. And the rest of the Hebrew scriptures talks about the marriage relationship with Israel because everybody understands that Exodus 19 and 20 is in the context of a marriage. And so the people get into the land and they want their own king. They don't want God in that regards. And so they get their own king and then all of a sudden they've got a kingdom and then the kingdom divides and you have a northern kingdom of Israel that gets taken out by Assyria because the people of God are not acting like who God has asked them to be. They're not reflecting the marriage covenant. Then you have the southern kingdom. 150 years later, they're taken out by Babylon because they're also not living into their identity as God's bride. And putting God on display and representing him well in the world. And in the midst of all this, the people are struggling and they recognize that they've blown this relationship with God. They've in a sense divorced themselves from God. This is what Hosea is all about. The prophet of Hosea talks all about this. And in the midst of all this, the people are going, all right, well... um, Man, Moses, all the way back in Deuteronomy 18, prophesied about this guy who was to come, this Messiah who was going to demonstrate for us, how do you live in proper relationship with God? How do you put God's heart on display to begin putting the broken pieces of the world back together? And all of a sudden we hit the New Testament. And there's all this chatter going on about this guy by the name of Yeshua, Jesus. And the people are wondering, like, is this it? Is this the Messiah? Is this the one who's going to demonstrate what it means to take the division in the world and start unifying the brokenness that was lost in the garden? And then we come to the Gospel of John. John telling his story about Jesus' ministry. And notice this with me, John chapter 2. By the way, I've never had a chance to explore this passage with you, and I'm so pumped to show this to you because John is brilliant. All of the gospel writers, they're brilliant in how they do what they do. And what we have here in the gospel of John, chapter two, is Jesus's first miracle. Now, it's his first miracle in John, but other scholars all, not all the scholars, but the majority of scholars believe that this is Jesus's first miracle, period. The first miracle of his ministry. In fact, notice with me verse 11. It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So this is the first miracle. This is, the, this is what launches Jesus' messianic movement. And check out the context with which it comes in. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2, the beginning of the story. On the third day... A wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. 
Jesus' response, woman, by the way, this is not disrespectful, all right? Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. So Jesus' ministry has not been kicked in gear yet. And he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus doesn't think this is the start of his ministry. But mothers know best. (laughs) All right? Especially Jewish mothers with lots of chutzpah. She's like, oh, Jesus, contraire. In fact, she doesn't even speak to him after he says, listen, my hour has not yet come. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. All right, just do whatever he tells you. Then verse five, uh, verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each one holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to his servants, or to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw out and take to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he said the bride, then he, excuse me, then he called the bridegroom aside and said this. Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best till now. So Jesus is at a what? A wedding. Yeah, of course he's at a wedding. Jesus is celebrating at a wedding. The wine runs out. His mom says, Jesus, you got to do something about this. He's like, it's not my time. She's like, I beg to differ. Says to the servants, do whatever he says. And it says that there were six stone water jars. Why do we need to know that there were six? See, it's very important that we know that there are six. Because whenever John gives us a number, the number is quantitative, yes. But there's also a qualitative nature to it as well. It's six stone jars, but it's the number six. And in a good Jewish reading of the text, you have to ask yourself, What is the significance of six? Why does John give us this number? Well, there's a couple of interpretations and they actually go together. The first is this. Six is one short of seven. Seven is a number of completeness, of wholeness. There were seven days of creation. Among the Jews, there are a couple words that mean communally or whole. One is the number 12, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples of Jesus, the whole group of Jesus, but also the number seven. They go, well, you're one short of seven, which means you're not quite whole. And I believe that's part of it, but here's the other thing. The reading of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of the world is believed to be in the context of the sixth day. That it was on the sixth day that Adam and Eve took from the fruit. That it was on the sixth day that chaos and pain and brokenness entered into the biblical story. And all of a sudden you come to John chapter 2 and John is telling the story about Jesus' messianic movement to restore the brokenness of creation that is in the service of the restoration of all things that will culminate with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And the way that John tells us is that In John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding. And in the midst of a wedding, which breeds hope that what's been divided can be united. That with the six stone jars, Jesus goes, my ministry is beginning today. And by the way, in the prophet Joel, the messianic movement begins with a new wine. And so Jesus with six six stone, that's tough to say, six stone jars says, I am setting out with my messianic movement to restore what happened on the sixth day, to take what's divided and to make it united. And he does so in the midst of a wedding. Of course he does it in the midst of a wedding. 
Because a marriage, a wedding is always speaking to a deeper reality. And Jesus will continue to talk about the significance of a marriage and of a wedding throughout his ministry because Jesus knows the narrative scripture. He understands that before the fall, there was a marriage. Then there was a fall on the sixth day. And then at Exodus 19 and 20, God married in a wedding ceremony his people to say we're going to put all the pieces back together. But the people struggled to do that. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he goes, let's start this with a wedding because I'm going to pick up the broken pieces and I'm going to put the whole thing back together and I'm going to teach you how to join me to do it in the process. Yeah, this is why he does it in a wedding. And then you go on to other aspects when Jesus talks about marriage. Come with me to Matthew chapter 19. In the... Uh, chronology of this. This is later in his ministry, but it's a few books to the left for us if you're new to the text. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has been questioned about the oh-so-painful conversation of divorce. And Jesus is responding to questions about divorce. And Jesus speaks into the pain and the brokenness And the heartache of divorce, Jesus shows great compassion for people who have had to go through this. Because though in this passage Jesus affirms the sanctity of marriage, that what God has brought together let nobody separate, Jesus also speaks into the reality of divorce because Jesus understands that in a broken world, divorce is going to happen. And as a result of Jesus talking about the pain of divorce, the disciples say this in verse 10. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. Like the disciples go, Jesus, if this is a reality, then maybe it's, maybe we shouldn't get married. Now, this is a little bit contrary to the story, the biblical narrative, because Jesus has just quoted the goodness of marriage. He says, God brings married people together. What God has brought together, let's not separate that. Let's not divide that. God has brought that together. But there is divorce, there is pain, there is brokenness. And for those of you who have gone through that, you understand the heartache that Jesus is referencing here. But then notice what Jesus' response is to 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 their statement. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs, who have been born that way. By the way, this is people who have either have men who have damaged genitalia or no genitalia that they can't enter into sexual union in a marriage context. So he says some of them were born this way. It's just a, a physical deformity. Then the next line Jesus says, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. Okay, that's a rough day, all right? He's saying somebody did that to you. And there's probably lots of different, not probably, there are lots of different contexts for that. Don't need to get into that. And then there are those, get this what Jesus says, who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Jesus goes, there are people who are single and they choose to live this way. And Jesus goes, and I'm down with that. See, Jesus is all for marriage and for sex, the goodness of sex, the goodness of marriage. Jesus is all for that. I mean, in Matthew 19, he's quoting Genesis chapter 2. He's quoting passages about marriage. He's going to wedding ceremonies and he's celebrating. In fact, he's the one who's keeping the wedding ceremony going on so that the people can continue to party and celebrate with wine. And Jesus can too. He celebrates the goodness of marriage. He's all for marriage. But what we find out here is Jesus is also all for singles and singleness as well. You see, what often gets communicated in our world is that if you are single, if you haven't found a spouse, if you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s and you've never married, well, somehow you're missing out or somehow you are less than. Jesus says quite the contrary. He says, if you're doing this for the sake of the kingdom of God, this is how God created you. This is God's plan for you. Jesus is down with that. Jesus was single. If you're single, you're in good company. 
Paul was single. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7, we don't have time to go there, but write this down. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul makes a case for singleness. And the case simply goes like this. For those who are married, their attention is divided. Now, we're using the idea of division in a negative way today, right? To talk about the contrast between divided and united. But if your allegiance is divided, this is not a bad thing because it is God who brings marriages together. But the reality is, is that my focus is divided because I have a wife. I have kids. My focus goes towards my wife. My focus goes towards my kids. My focus also goes to the kingdom of heaven. What Paul is saying is that when you are single, you can have single-minded devotedness to the things of God and to what God wants you to do in the world. Paul is all for being single. Jesus is all for being single. Paul doesn't discredit marriage. Jesus doesn't discredit marriage. But for Paul and Jesus, marriage is not the end all be all. It's not like the height of human existence. It speaks into a different reality and some people have been called to be married and some people have called to be, be called to be in single and both are fine. Now, why is it for Jesus that marriage isn't the end-all, be-all? Why isn't it the height of human existence? Well, come with me to Luke chapter 20. And there is another passage that we get about Jesus talking about marriage. And like the Matthew 19 passage, we don't have time to go through uh, what's going on here and why are the Sadducees asking this question and what are the, what's the theology of the Sadducees? You'll pick up on what the point is as we just read this. Notice verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection, okay, so they don't believe there's a resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her, and in the same way the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Okay, so there's something in the Hebrew scriptures called uh, Levirate marriage, which basically was a way of keeping the clans moving forward, and there's an inheritance stream going on here. The idea is that if a woman married a man and she didn't give birth before the man died, then the closest relative, which is generally a brother, had to step in and provide children, and there's all these really great reasons for why this was. And they're basically saying, so a woman was married to seven brothers, and uh, now in heaven, who's she going to be married to? That's the question that they have. And Jesus' response is this in verse 34. The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. So in asking the question, why isn't marriage the end all be all? Jesus makes it clear here in Luke 20 because there's no marriage in heaven. It's not reflected of what's going to happen in the world to come. And you go, well, why is there no marriage in heaven? Well, now we go to the end of the story. Come with me to Revelation chapter 21. And we will conclude here because we've ran out of text. There's not much more after this. Revelation 21 and 22. Check out what happens here in Revelation 21 and 22. By the way, write this in your notes. You can look at this later. Um, Revelation 19, verses 6 to 9. It talks about the forthcoming wedding of the Messiah. Check out what we read here in verse 1 of chapter 21 of Revelation. This is now a picture of the end of the story. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city. By the way, the no longer any sea, that's really good because the sea is a reference to chaos. It's a reference to brokenness. I saw, verse two, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We have bridal language. The new Jerusalem is in reference to the city that encompasses those who get to be part of eternal life. God's people, they're part of this new Jerusalem. They are now the bride to God in a wedding ceremony that takes place at the end of the story after everything has been redeemed and restored. Notice how it continues. Verse three, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Right? We've said this before. God doesn't say I'm making all new things. God says I have made all things new. That at the redemption of all things, at the restoration of all things, we have a wedding. Of course we have a wedding. Because again, at the beginning of the story, before the fall, there is a wedding. God divided in order to show united to be a picture of everything else that was going to come in the story. Then you have the fall. And then in Exodus 19 and 20, you have a wedding. God's saying we're going to put the broken pieces back together. The start of Jesus' ministry is done in the context of a wedding. And now as a result, the fullness of the kingdom of heaven has come into existence. Everything has been redeemed. Everything has been restored and the way that God makes the point that everything has been unified we have ourselves another wedding because at the end of the story we find that the shalom that was shattered in the garden has been restored in the city and in chapter 22 we find out That the number of 12 is there for the healing of the nations, this number of completion, this number of wholeness. And in 22 verse 3, it says there will be no more curse. The curse of Genesis 3 that jacked up the entire story is going to be redeemed at the end of the story itself. And if it's this, that marriage breeds hope that what's divided can be united, then what happens When there is no longer a need for hope. What happens when humanity has been fully restored to God, to ourselves, to one another, and to creation that Revelation 21 and 22 tells us about? What happens in that moment? Marriage is no longer necessary because there's no more need for hope. We live on this side of that reality, don't we? And now you've caught a glimpse at why our marriages are so unbelievably important. Because they speak to a deeper reality. That marriage today is to breed hope that what's been divided in the world can be united. This is why it's so important for you to have a great marriage. That for those of you who are married, we implore you, have a great marriage. And central to the marriage union is the sexual union. Have a great sex life. It is all part of the unfolding story. If you are struggling sexually in your relationship, this good gift from a good God for you to enjoy the pleasure, the joy aspect of it, then have a conversation around it. Stop running from the conversation. If you need to meet with a Christian counselor to talk about why there is such an issue or why it brings so much emotional pain or concern, have those conversations. 
Have a great sex life. Have a great marriage. And recognize, obviously, that marriage is so much more than having a great sex life. Have a great marriage in the rest of the context. Have great conversations with your spouse. Enjoy being together. Get away. Invest in your marriage. Make it as good as it possibly can be. Because the strength of your marriage is a picture. It gives a deeper reality that's very mystical in many ways. That somehow your marriage breeds hope to the rest of the world. That what's been divided can be united. That God is working in a redemptive way. And in some way, shape, or form, your marriage is achad as God is achad. What God is doing in the world, your marriage has something to say about that. We want you to have a great marriage. This is why we're doing whatever we can to invest in you. September 30th, we have Married Life. It is a three-hour and 15-minute experience that Sarah Young, Craig, and myself are going to be speaking at. It's on a Friday night, September 7th. Ah, what is it? No, September 30th. I just said that. I'm going to tell you the next one in a moment. And some people are like, well, we're already kind of hitting this on a Sunday. Yeah, we are hitting on a Sunday and come on a Friday night as well. We're even giving you money for your babysitters so that you can come because we believe it's going to be that significant and we're going to be able to do things that we won't be able to do on the Sundays. We want you to come to that. If your marriage is struggling, it's on the brink of divorce. You're having those conversations or they're unwritten conversations that you're having. Restoring the gift, October 17th, Monday nights for 10 weeks. Put your pride on the shelf and say, my marriage is not what it needs to be and we need to begin to restore this amazing gift that God has given to us. Marriage is a great thing. Sex is a great thing. It is to be enjoyed. It is a slice of heaven. But friends, understand, it isn't the whole pie. If you are single, you are not less than. You are as exactly as God has created you to be. God may have designed you to be single your entire life. It doesn't mean that you are less than, that you are lower than, that you are one class lower of humanity. Jesus again was single. You're in really good company. Be faithful with the life that God has given to you. We need you to be faithful. I need you to be faithful. I need you to demonstrate to me what single-minded focus is towards the kingdom of heaven because I do live divided. I have a wonderful wife and I put a lot of time and energy into that relationship. I've got four kids. They are Busy little boogers. I love them to no end. But they take a lot of my time and energy. And I've also got my, my, my focus needs to be towards the kingdom of heaven. And I need you to set an example for me what reckless abandonment looks like for God's purposes to be made available here on earth. And you're leading the way. You're leading the charge. We need you to do that. And we need you to do that well. Bring it. Give it to us. And by the way, if there is no marriage in heaven, that means God has set aside something greater for all of us to experience. And you may think it's a sacrifice to not be able to engage in sex, to not have a marriage here on earth, but friends, whatever God has planned for us in eternity is gonna far supersede whatever we experience here on earth. There is a reward for God's people. Be faithful now, because you're gonna have all of eternity to enjoy it. Marriage is in the service of the restoration of all things. Singleness is in the service of the restoration of all things. Friends, whatever God has called you to do, do it really, really well. Because it is all part of God's unfolding kingdom. And in the words made famous by Forrest Gump, that's all I got to say about that. (laughs) Oh, bless God, bless God. 
Friends, the rest of the series, we're going to continue to explore sex in its proper context. We'll continue to talk about being single. We're going to talk about sex and marriage and the goodness of what God is doing. Uh, we continue to invite you back for it because Craig and I, we've got a lot planned for the rest of the series. So uh, with that in mind, hey, I took a, a few extra minutes this morning. And so let's just do this. Just stand. We're going to kind of do a, a closing blessing. That'll be both our, our prayer and our blessing um, for us today. And then we just ask that, uh, that you would just go and have a chance to grab your kids as soon as you can. Thank the ministry workers on days like this where we go a little bit longer. Um, like your kids have already like passed the bewitching hour. So um, just thank them for that. And uh, my friends and family, as you leave here today, may you recognize that God is up to a lot of amazing things in this world. And that daily he invites us into his story. Whether you are married or whether you are single, play your part well because it all speaks into the unfolding reality that God is redeeming the world and he wants to use you in the process. May you experience this in your own life, in your own marriage, in your own friendships, in your own relationships. And may you be a conduit through which God can do that through you to a broken and hurting world. Grace and peace be with all of you. Have a great week. Take care.